Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Hey, welcome. I'm Chris Shandro, the pastor at Compass. As always, I'm thrilled to have you with me. So several years ago, an author named Monica Parker released a book called OMG, How Children See God. And in this book, she asked kids of different economic, cultural, religious backgrounds, all what they thought about God, and then she had them draw pictures to illustrate that. And then she put all that stuff together in this book. Now, this book puts together a really interesting perspective on what kids think God is like. So for example, uh, five-year-old Ange thinks that God is like a superhero flying around in a cape, rescuing the world. Nine-year-old Gabby, she thinks that God is listening to everything we're saying, and as a result, he has giant ears so that he can hear us. Twelve-year-old Olivia, she thinks God apparently is an anime character who throws around thunder and lightning when he gets mad. And 11-year-old Mia, I mean, she thinks that God lives in the clouds like a lot of other people, but apparently he also has the power of, of invisibility and apparently loads of fresh fruit. Now, you may look at these childlike ideas of what God is like and and think they're cute. But you may also think that they're kind of immature and unrealistic. I mean, God is not flying around like a superhero with a cape or eavesdropping on us with his gigantic ears, right? But how do we know? I mean, Mia also said that nobody knows if God is a man or woman, so she drew God as half and half. Now, we obviously use male pronouns for God, but the truth is God isn't a man or a woman like us. So is Mia's childlike view of God right? Or would the wise, informed, adult view of God say otherwise? And ultimately, how do we know? If you believe there's a God, how do we know God isn't like any of the pictures these kids drew? I mean, who decides? What is the authority that resolves our doubts and uncertainties about God? What's the authority that can answer our tough questions about who God is and what he's like? Well, as we've been working our way through Matthew chapter 11, we have kicked up a lot of dust because we've been talking about doubt and certainty. We talked about how God isn't afraid of your doubts about him. And we talked about how there are times when God doesn't meet our expectations. And then how do we navigate that? We've talked about how religious certainty, rather than being a good thing to desire, is actually something that can make it harder for us to understand God and what he's doing. And if you've been with us the entire time through this message series, as we've embraced doubt and uncertainty, and maybe even created some doubt and uncertainty, you may be wondering, what can we be certain of? I mean, if doubt is the soil that faith grows best in, and if religious certainty can make it hard to see what God is doing, is there anything that we can be sure of? I mean, how can we have any certainty about God? Well, that's a good question. And if the first four weeks of this message series were about being comfortable with spiritual doubt and uncertainty, the final two weeks, starting today, are going to be about how we can resolve our spiritual doubt. And we're going to begin today with something Jesus taught in Matthew 11, verse 25 through 26. And this is what Jesus said. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. So according to what Jesus says here, let me just summarize. There are things that God is revealing, 
And there are certain people he's revealing them to. So what are the things he's revealing and who are the people who he's revealing them to? Well, we need to remember in the background of everything that Jesus has been saying in Matthew 11 about doubt and certainty and all this stuff, there's one question. That's this. Are you the Messiah we've been waiting for? The people of Israel believed that a promised Jewish Messiah was going to rise up, lead the people in overthrowing the Roman occupation that they lived under, and that this Messiah would set up a new Jewish kingdom, a kingdom of God, a kingdom of heaven. They believed that this kingdom would be a physical, military, and political kingdom where the Messiah would literally rule as the leader and king of a restored nation of Israel, a nation that was recommitted to the God of Jerusalem, the God of the temple. And this was what they were looking for when Jesus was asked if he was the Messiah. But they asked because they had doubts about Jesus. I mean, Jesus avoided political power. He wasn't raising an army. He didn't seem all that righteous, in fact, because he hung out and partied with known sinners. Jesus never criticized Rome, and, and instead, Jesus said the people should love their enemies, which would be Rome. The people were certain of what the Jewish Messiah would be like, but Jesus didn't fit that mold very well. And yet, the kingdom of God, the actual kingdom of God the people were looking forward to, was exactly what Jesus was introducing. I mean, sick people were being healed. The good news was being preached to the poor. The problem was that the kingdom Jesus described didn't match what many people wanted it to be or expected it to be. The kingdom Jesus was ushering in was a kingdom focused on the poor and marginalized, not the wise and powerful of the world, but the childlike. Jesus' kingdom didn't seek power, but instead elevated the humble and meek. It didn't reward wealth and influence and, and position or even external righteousness, but instead it taught that those things could actually be hurdles to entering the kingdom of God. In short, the kingdom of God Jesus was introducing and the Jesus who was introducing it held little interest to the people who were in power in Jesus' day. They had doubts about Jesus, about his behavior and what he taught. And as a result, they just couldn't see him the way that the people at the bottom could. And in response to all this, Jesus pauses. He stops in his address to the crowd and he prays this short prayer, thanking God for choosing to make access to his kingdom easiest for the people who have the least access to the power structures of the world the poor, the sick, the marginalized, the uneducated. And it's because God's kingdom is upside down. The power structures of our world are controlled by a few at the top, but the kingdom of God is one where the last are first and the least of us become the greatest. I mean, look at how the apostle Paul sums up this teaching of Jesus in his letter to the church in Corinth. Paul writes this, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing 
what the world considers important. So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying this, that God chose to reveal himself to the world in ways that powerful and influential people would think were foolish. And this is important. How did God reveal himself? Well, Jesus continues in Matthew 11, verse 27. He turns back to the crowd and says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. No one knows the Father except those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That can come across as a strong statement from Jesus. I mean, does that mean that Jesus is picking and choosing who gets to know God and who doesn't? Like some sort of, you know, spiritual lottery system? Well, no, not exactly. My sister Pamela is a pretty accomplished actress, and she performs primarily in musical theater. And honestly, she's always loved musicals, all the way back to when she was a little kid. In fact, while other kids were listening to Nirvana or Janet Jackson, Pamela was rocking out to the soundtrack of Into the Woods or Rent. We were teasing her about it one time at a family event when she was about 12 or 13, and we were giving her such a hard time that she snapped. She'd had enough, and she stood up and she screamed at us, my music is my life. If you make fun of my music, you are making fun of me. And then she stormed out of the room. Now, at the time, I thought it was a bit of an overreaction, and I laughed pretty hard. <laughs> Although, after having middle school kids of my own, I now know that that's exactly how a young teenager who's going through puberty is going to react to being teased. But I also get what she was saying. I mean, there are things in our lives that we connect with and identify with, things that we feel represent us in ways that maybe we couldn't express otherwise. And those things for you, it could be music or a movie or a book or a, a fictional character. It could be a hobby or a fashion style that represents you. I mean, I had a period of about 20 years where the only shoes I wore were black Converse All-Stars. They just felt like me. Kids in our church, they would get their own pair of Converse and then they would come show me their Pastor Chris shoes. I mean, Converse All-Stars just felt like they represented me well. And in the same way, Jesus represents God. He represents how God thinks, how God loves, how God interacts with the world and the people in it. We talked earlier about how different kids answered the question, what is God like? You know, is he a superhero or an invisible guy with giant ears and fruit? Well, now we have an answer. It's this. What is God like? God is like Jesus. So much of people's uncertainty about God boils down to questions about what he's like based on things they see in the Bible or based on their own perceptions about what he does or doesn't do in our world. And those doubts raise a lot of big questions. Is God angry? Does he support genocide? Does he support the death penalty for sin? <coughs> Excuse me. Is God really going to send people to eternal suffering in hell? I mean, these are all huge questions about God, and Jesus doesn't answer any of them directly. He just says, I reveal what God is like. And it's not just Matthew 11. This is a thread that runs throughout all of the Gospels in the New Testament. And it's also something that the first Christians firmly believed. I mean, John 1.1 says this, 
In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. When John, who wrote this, says the word of God, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is God and he has been from the beginning. But now look at what Jesus says about himself. In John 10, 30, Jesus says, the father and I are one. In John 14, 9, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. Jesus said this at the last supper, right before he was arrested and crucified. And it's the clearest statement he made about not only his divinity, but about how he shows the full nature of God to everyone who sees him. The apostle Paul wrote this in Colossians 2.9. He says, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Paul says that Jesus doesn't just represent aspects of God or part of God, but Jesus fully, completely, and totally shows us the character and nature of God in his life. And then the writer of Hebrews, he sums it up incredibly like this in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, in the Old Testament times, the times of the law and prophets, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. And get this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is God. And if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, because God is like Jesus. This is so important for us to fully grasp because not only is the divinity of Jesus a fundamental cornerstone to the Christian faith, but it's important because it gives us a template for how to wrestle and process doubt and uncertainty. When you know that God is like Jesus, you have a starting point for when you have questions and doubt. Do you struggle with reconciling the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament? Well, if Jesus is the exact representation of God's being, then we can trust that Jesus is a fuller, truer, and more definitive picture of God than that represented in other places. Because God is like Jesus. Do you struggle with the idea that God is vengeful or angry and out to punish sinners? Do you worry that God doesn't accept people because of their sexual orientation or their past behavior? Well, God is like Jesus. And Jesus accepted everyone. He particularly went after people who were marginalized and had messy histories. That was his jam. Jesus went to the cross rather than rain down vengeance on those who opposed him and made him mad. And God is like Jesus. The people Jesus was talking to in the first century were mired in their own strict religious culture with its structure and its certainty. And then they also had their doubts, their fears and questions about who God was and what he was doing. But the people were waiting for someone to just pull the curtain back to reveal what God was like, when his kingdom would come and what his kingdom would be like. You may be doing the same, wondering, 
what is God like? What is he doing in this world? Who is God to you and, and what his kingdom would look like in your life if you fully embraced it? Well, as the curtain draws back now on all those questions, there's one person revealed behind that curtain, Jesus. Because God is like Jesus in how he works, in how he acts, in how he thinks, in how he loves. And when you know what God, and when you know that God is like Jesus, that can become the template, the filter through which you can now run all your doubts, your questions, and even perhaps your incorrect religious assumptions and certainty. It's now the starting point for understanding everything else because Jesus is the authority that resolves our doubts and uncertainties about God. The truth of who God is and what he wants will always be found in Jesus because God is like Jesus. So if you are looking for God as he really is, start there. If you are uncertain about God, look to Jesus. If you have doubts about how God loves, how God thinks, what God does and what God is like, start with Jesus. Because God is like Jesus. I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com. 